You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hey friends, welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical backward ass ideals we have here in the United States. This is episode 81 of American Sex Podcast. I'm Sunny Megatron. And I'm Ken Mulvoinberg, and Sunny Megatron beats me in the middle of the night. I'm so sorry. Okay, <laughs> American fuckers, just real quick. First of all, <laughs> we're sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and kinky perverts. We're married, and apparently I beat the shit out of my husband when I'm asleep. So, like, Especially <laughs> last night, like 15, 16 times you wailed on me because I was like, sweetheart, your CPAP mask is leaking. You sound like Darth Vader. And you were like, wham, went full on fist, hit I'm me sorry. 15, 16 times. I don't remember. And I would never hit you in real life. It's I, th- I, 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 I'm sorry. That was real life. <laughs> no, I mean, not for me. I was, it was my sleep mind. I would never beat you awake. Put it that way. Well, and I don't hit back with, you know, but like, if unless I'm in a real fight, but when I'm in a, like, in bed, <laughs> getting beat up by my wife, I didn't know what to do. I'm sorry. I gotta get a wife poking stick I'm to sorry. wake your ass up. I think I'm reliving my trauma in my subconscious sleep, and I think you're hurting me. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm not hurting you. I, I know. I was loving you. I even kissed you first, then you smacked me in the I face. Know. I and then, love I, you. <laughs> then I grab a hold of your arm. I'm like, sweetheart, I'm touching your arm, like giving little spider kisses. And you're like, bam, bam, bam. I'm like, you're back. Your mask is your mask is off. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, hi, American fuckers. Don't non-consensually beat people she in their beats sleep. Me. Oh, stop, stop. So this week, you'll hear our conversation with Dr. Sarah Blythe, somebody who doesn't hit her husband in the middle of the night. How do you know, and, Ken? How do you know? <laughs> associate professor of communication studies at the University of Nevada, Reno, about the legal brothel system in the beautiful state of Nevada. Dr. Blythe is an expert in organizational communication and specializes in gender, work-life balance, policy inequalities, and management learning. She's the author of Sex and Stigma, Stories of Everyday Life in Nevada's Legal Brothels, along with Anna Wiederhold-Wolf and Brianna Moore. So Nevada is the only state currently in the U.S. where full-service sex work is legal, and Dr. Blythe has spent the last five years researching the negative stigma and the secrecy of sex worth within the legal brothel system. So in this conversation, and you're going to you're gonna fucking love an American fuckers, she tells us about teaming up with two other women in her field, one of which is also a legal courtesan working in a brothel, to interview those people who are part of the brothel ecosystem. So sex workers, brothel owners, employees, plus local officials and law enforcement. We talk about what they ended up uncovering, which was not only the positives of consensual sex, work, but also the not so often talked about negatives, those mainly being unfair labor practices and discrimination, which are perpetuated by the stigma that surrounds legal brothels and those that work in them. I was absolutely truly shocked at some of the arbitrary, outdated, discriminatory rules and practices that are adhered to in some of the brothels and also hearing about how In one respect, small Nevada towns really rely on the revenue generated from the brothel system, like really like that they keep the town alive. But on the other hand, they treat the sex workers generating that revenue like second class citizens. So American fuckers, you are about to learn a lot over the next hour 
But before that, y'all know what time it is, right? It's big welcome and heartfelt appreciation time to the new members of our Patreon family. I want to give a big welcome and our heartfelt appreciation to the awesome folks that joined our Patreon family over the last few weeks. Thanks to Tom and the Orgasm Company, we couldn't do this podcast without your support. Now, I also want to mention that we've got a link to the Orgasm Company on our Patreon thank you page at americansexpodcast.com. They've got a really cool looking sexual health device for the shower, so go check that out. And if you're like, Patreon, what? What? Okay, hop on over to patreon.com slash American Sex, where you can learn about how you can become an American Sex Podcast member. Not only does your membership help support the show, you get lots of awesome perks too, like bonus stories from our guests, extra full-length episodes, American Sex Podcast stickers. Have you gotten yours yet? They're pretty damn cool. Uh, personal video greeting, random surprises in the mail, backlinks on our website like the Orgasm Company did, wink, 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 and a lot more. All right, one last thing. Social media has been cracking down and removing people just like us that talk about sex in any way, shape, or form due to the terrible laws of SESTA and FOSTA. I highly encourage you to get on our mailing list so we don't lose touch with you in the event of a censorship crackdown, which is a very real fear for us. You can do it with just your phone. Just text the word Megatron to the number 444 999 and you're in. That's it. It's super simple. You can also visit sunnymegatron.com slash newsletter to sign up online. All right, ready? Here's our conversation with Dr. Sarah Blythe. So I am super excited today. Whenever we have an academic on the show, I get a little bit excited uh, just because everybody knows that the focus of our podcast is about sex. And whenever we talk to an academic, it has to do with the either the science or the psychology of sex in some way, shape, and form. Now, today, we have with us Dr. Sarah Blythe. Uh, Sarah, or Dr. Blythe, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, and we really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yay. Yay. I'm excited, too. I tingle when there's anything academic and studies and <laughs> data and interviews and stuff. I get all excited. So Yeah, Sonny has a data fetish. I well, really do. <laughs> she I do. Does. So to start off with, tell us about you. Okay. Well, I am an organizational communication scholar, and under that umbrella, I study gender. Um, and so for me, that usually looks like um, checking out policy inequities or uh, occupational identity that um, that maybe happens in gendered ways. So occupations that tend to be taken up by all women or all men. Um, I'm also interested in... Um, you know, policies that force that gender binary where it has to be women or men, it doesn't really make room for anybody else and seeing how we can maybe undo that a little bit. And so I, I got interested in this research just, um, you know, kind of by coincidence, I was in Reno at the camel races. And seriously, Wait, there are camel. We just moved to Nevada and we're very excited about everything Nevada at okay. this point. Well, and I, I, we need to hear about the camel races. I'm yes. sorry. Like let's lead in with the camel races. So I was new to Nevada at that point too. And the camel races are a very Nevada experience. Uh, so I was at the camel races with my two children and they kind of ran up front and were checking out the animals. And I noticed as I was watching my kids and listening to the announcer that the announcer was making very lewd comments about the women riding the camels. What? Yes. And so I started paying attention and I realized it was actually a local brothel 
had sponsored uh, legal sex workers to ride the camels in that particular event. And ah. which is, is interesting, you know, the brothels have very tight regulations around how they can advertise. And so that's one way that the legal brothels advertises by sponsoring community events. And kind of at the same moment, I was checking my email on my phone and one of my favorite academic journals called Management Communication Quarterly had a call for hidden organizations. And so I just thought, oh my goodness, all of a sudden it just clicked that I really should be studying sex work and the brothels because I'm in this unique location where it's legal. So that is interesting to me as an organizational and occupational scholar. Uh, what does this look like as an occupation? Ah, okay. Because I was I was like, how does a professor of, of communication <laughs> suddenly write a book about sex work? So it all makes sense. So, oh, and real quick, I wanted to add that um, you weren't the sole author of the book. You co-authored it along with uh, Anna Wolf, who was a professor at Texas A&M, I believe, and Brianna Moore, who is a master's student. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so at the time, uh, Anna Wolf was here as a professor at the University of Nevada also. And I, she's, she's actually an expert in community engagement. Also, she does organizational communication, but her sweet spot is looking at how organizations fit in with the community. And I thought her perspective would be really important, um, thinking about, you know, again, this event happening and how the brothels were engaging in the community. And so she and I, I you know, I, I talked to her and convinced her to, that this was a good idea, that we could start studying the brothels. And uh, so we did. We, we we did a bunch of observations in, in brothels across the state, and we did interviews with all kinds of people who work in brothels, sex workers, um, uh, the brothel owners, actually bartenders, and other folks involved in the industry, uh, the lobbyists, and some of the sheriffs of the, the towns that are enforcing uh, laws around the brothels. So we did a bunch of research, and we wrote um, a couple papers. And then I just by chance had a research assistant. She was one of my best students. And I asked her if she would be a research assistant of mine. And when we met to go over kind of which project she might be interested in joining, she said, I really want to do the brothel project, but I need to tell you something. <laughs> and then she said, I actually uh, work there. And so, ah. yes. Yeah, so how we navigated, and she was also a student of Anna's at the time. So how we navigated uh, working with her without it becoming exploitative was was very mm -hmm. important to Anna and I to think about, you know, how, how could we manage this relationship, which already there's a lot of power there. And, you know, we, we, of course, were very protective of her identity, which at the time, you know, she wasn't actually sharing her occupational status with many people. And so that those were, were concerns that we really had to think through as we started doing this research together. Uh, and ultimately, we decided we just we had to be an equal team um, in mm -hmm. order to try to diminish some of those power differences between us. Yeah, and, and I think that's wonderful. One, that you were looking at the power dynamics. And two, a, a big criticism of the academic study of sex work is that sex workers aren't involved. And I don't mean just in the interviews, but like, on the ground floor and in the work and compiling the work. And that's really important that you had somebody who was one of your co-authors that actually 
new sex work from the ground floor. So now, and it seems like the stars kind of all just aligned, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So having her on your team and as a co-author, what are some of the things that she ended up bringing to the table that maybe you otherwise might have overlooked or not realized? So she she brought so much to the table. I'm, you know, on one hand, it was just good for, you know, data validity and making sure that the data Anna and I collected before she came on, um, you know, Brianna wasn't able to see all of the, um, that raw data because that was before mm-hmm. she was on the project, but she was able to see our analysis and what happened. And as she was reading it, she was able to say, this is very true to my experience and, mm-hmm. you know, to what I've seen. So I would say as far as, you know, just kind of validating some of the data, that was an important piece. Um, she also contributed an autoethnographic chapter in the book, which okay. I, I think is just outstanding. And we also added in after that, um, the original data collection, we decided to collect some more uh, with people who had left the legal brothels. And those are, that's a very hard to reach population. And that was something that uh, she was able to facilitate based on her insider status. Okay, okay. Real quick, just uh, for our listeners and for me, because I don't know what that is. What is autoethnography? Oh, thanks. Yeah, of course. Uh, (laughs) So autoethnography is, um, it's a form of qualitative data research where the author is talking primarily, they're using the self as data. Mm. So it's, it's different. It's not a memoir where you're telling a story, but it's really taking a hard look at particular experiences that inform, in this case, it's informing some of the theory and the arguments that we're putting forward in the book. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, kind of, it's a very deep look at the self as data, but it's written in a way that's a little bit more accessible than other kinds of academic data. You know, she's using the I form, which we actually do through the whole book, but that chapter in particular is very personal and I think easy to read. It doesn't always even feel like you're reading academic work because it's, it it's enjoyable because you're you're really learning about uh, her her yeah which which is always fascinating and the name of the book is sex and stigma stories of everyday life in Nevada's legal brothels how is it that you go from collecting this massive amount of data into transforming it into regular stories about everyday people's lives <laughs> well you know throughout the the project. We, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we really wanted to privilege the voices of women performing this work because, as you mentioned, so much work in academia and elsewhere actually is uh, it's just written about them and not focusing on their experiences and their voices. So the data that, you know, the chapters in the book are are reflecting themes that we heard across the interview. So they're all it's all driven by um the women and what they what they had to say, and just a quick aside, you know, I keep saying the women. Um, there are not male legal sex workers in the state of Nevada currently. And oh, I, really? I actually, I didn't know that. Huh? Yes. So why? Uh, well, that's actually it's pretty strategic on the part of the brothel owners. Um, there's always pressure to shut down the brothels, and most of the brothel owners we spoke with believe that. Uh, I mean, put put simply, that gay sex is too much for the moral um, opposition, and that they're already kind of opposed to this idea of uh, paid 
heterosexual couplings. And so they find it to be like, it would be even more stigmatizing. And so sometimes the brothels um, think that they just want to, they have a saying, they want to lay low beneath the sagebrush. And the idea of, um, um, you know, of gay sex, they think is a little bit too, too much for the moral uh, opposition. So I know that that has been getting increasingly political, especially up in Reno, where before Dennis Huff passed, he actually won an election. He was like, he was the first dead guy, I think, to win an election <laughs> in that particular area. And he was running against a man, if I'm not mistaken, who was both a minister and an attorney who's trying to shut down the legal brothels. Um, what what was your feeling on that after getting to know these people? Yes, it's, it is quite contentious. And... There's, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting opposition because in one way, the brothels fit in fine with the local communities. And, you know, there was some recent legislation in Lyon County, um, kind of an uh, informative type question that they put on the ballot about whether or not the brothel should be legal. And it was overwhelming, like 83% or over 80% at least um, suggested that the brothel should be legal. And there's there's academic research out there to suggest that legal brothels are much safer than illegal prostitution situations, um, including hotel prostitution or street prostitution, certainly. Um, but there is consistent moral opposition. And it, it's funny, it comes from kind of unlikely bedfellows, but religious right groups and then also um, radical feminist groups who would be it believe that any prostitution is coerced sex. Mm. Okay. So I have a question for you and I found this really interesting to hear that you address this in the book. So, so for us who are, you know, advocates for the sex worker community, a lot of um, sex worker advocates say there are certain terms that you use and the terms that you usually use is sex worker mm -hmm. and that you shouldn't use a term like prostitute and listeners, please don't ever say hooker. That is just bad. But I found it really interesting to hear that there was a discussion about the term sex worker amongst people that that work in legal brothels that that actually isn't the preferred term. So can you talk a little about that? Yes. So this was actually a, a major issue that uh, Anna and Brianna and I were working through in terms of what we were going to say in the book. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we've settled on using the term legal prostitute. Um, that is not always, in fact, it's not usually even an, a preferred term. Right. The reason we did that is because sex work is... Um, a little bit, con well, it's contested uh, by multiple people who believe this isn't work. We, of course, think it is work um, and, and, and an occupation that some people can choose. Um, but sex work is also quite broad. So it would include other things such as exotic dancing or camera work or um, domination. Yeah, absolutely. Sugaring. So, uh, you know, we were talking about a very specific kind of sex work. Mm -hmm. which is why we said we use the term in the book legal prostitution. I mean, it's also quite different to say, you know, prostitute versus legal prostitute. And so even though after a while in the book, it seems like it's a mouthful to keep repeating it, uh, we were very clear to make sure that, that our readers understood this is a very different population. And the experiences of legal sex workers 
uh, or legal prostitutes are, are very, very different from other kinds of sex work and from illegal prostitution. Okay. Okay. So it's a, it's a differentiating term that it's almost as if, you know, legal prostitutes, as you call them, are fall under the sex worker umbrella, but mm-hmm. not all sex workers fall into that category. Yes. And in fact, actually, yeah. I think most of the women we spoke with, the most common term I heard as far as preference was legal courtesan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but and and also just sex worker in general, people would identify as a sex worker uh, or legal courtesan, I would say. Right. Right. So for for those listening, and also for us, because we are recent transplants from Chicago to Nevada, um, you know, everyone in the country is kind of like, ooh, you can go visit a brothel, and it's totally legal. But there's a whole system as to how exactly this works, how it's regulated. So can you explain to us how the legal brothel system here in Nevada actually works? Sure. So, you know, it's it's difficult, um, first off, for them to get um, permits and that sort of thing. And the taxing is very high on the brothels. So high, in fact, that in some counties, some of the rural counties in Nevada, taxation from the brothels actually funds the entire county or the entire school district. Wow. Yes. So there are, I mean, at least one county in Nevada that would actually fold if the brothels are closed, if in that area. So I think that's part of it is that there is this high, uh, you know, tax category that is separate um, for the brothels. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also, so the women have to go through pretty significant screening to get what's called a work card uh, with the sheriff's office. And so they have to undergo um, testing for STIs and a criminal background check. And they have to be free of all of those things before they're allowed to legally work. Uh, We do also have condom laws in Nevada brothels. And so beyond that, I would say they're always kind of under a microscope where people are watching very carefully to see what's happening, um, you know, in the brothels. So they have things like panic buttons in the rooms for safety. You know, they have to have a certain amount of people on site. Uh, they have to be a certain distance from schools. Uh, and it, it oftentimes, you know, some of the way these are reg- the brothels are regulated depends on the county in which they exist. Uh, there are not necessarily rules uh, or laws that govern every brothel in the state. Um, many of them are subject to different laws and constraints based on their city or their county. Mm. Now, what about this, like not being allowed to leave thing? I've heard about this. And is that actually a thing? And is it a thing in every brothel? Like they, they go and they can't leave for like a whole weekend or something? Yeah, it, it is a thing. Uh, it is not in every brothel in the state. Again, that's another aspect that falls under city and county rules. Um, but it's it's called lockdown. Well, none of the brothel owners will call it lockdown policy. They will say that anyone is allowed to leave at any time. Um but kind of colloquially, it's called lockdown policy. And there's a couple different ways it happens. So the women who are working in the brothels are independent contractors. So technically, they can leave anytime they want. However, mm-hmm. the, the, the aspect of lockdown is that they can't, um, they can't come back or they have to be there a certain amount of time while they're on contract. So in one county, for example, um, Women have a curfew where they have to be in at 7 p.m. and they can't leave the brothel until 7 a.m. 
And well, why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is this just like an old blue it's law? Like, like you can't arrest. like you can't like, drink beer on Sundays, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Like, is there a practical reason for this? Well, the you know the reason we found uh, the brothel owner was friends with the sheriff, and he explained that when they were trying to figure out the rules of how they were going to run it, they just thought nobody had business being out past seven. Truly. Wow. And that is that is still practiced today in that particular location. Uh, there's another one that has a 5 p.m. curfew. There's another one where uh, women who work at the brothels are not allowed in the town. Excuse me? Yes. Really? Just because you're dirty women and you can't be in our town kind right. of right. mentality? Mm-hmm. Wow. You can fund our schools, but you can't enjoy the town that you're <laughs> paying for. Exactly. God. So to, wow. to me, this is you know, simply labor discrimination, one, because they're independent contractors, then you can't tell them when and where they perform their work. Um, right. But also, you know, just kind of the the moral implications of telling someone they have a curfew, you know, grown adults that they have a curfew. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's fascinating. So some of the reasons why people will justify lockdown um, is that they're saying, okay, well, we need to make sure they have this, this phrase, like, we need to make sure everybody's clean. and that they are, you know, they're clear. And so they'll say, you know, if they leave the brothels, when they come back in, they have to go through the testing again. And we want to make sure that they're clear before they're able to work. And if you leave, we can't ensure that. Um, But my question is, why don't we lock doctors who come into contact with bodily fluids into hospitals? Right. You know, so it's, it's clearly based on stigma and not all brothels do this. Some of them say, okay, you have to be here during your contract. The women decide when they're going to, how long they're going to stay. So maybe if it's two weeks, they have to stay on property that whole two weeks. Um, And if they have to go off, they have someone called a runner who will drive, um, who will drive the women to appointments or things like that. Um, and then there are some brothels that don't have lockdown at all. They leave and go home at night um, as they would from maybe a typical, um, you know, 12 hour sh- shift type job. Wow. So I'm going to throw you under the bus here a little bit. In this next question. <laughs> okay. You said you had kids. Yes. If one of your children was say 21 years old and they came to you and said, mom, I want to go to a legal brothel. What would your response be to that? I guess I would wonder what their interest was in going. I mean, are they going as that they want to work there or they want to see a sex provider or are they Well, let, let's start with, I want to lose my virginity. <laughs> let's start with that. Like if they wanted to lose their virginity and they want to do it with a professional sex worker. Oh, gosh. That's hard because my kids are little, so I don't actually think of them as, as sexual <laughs> beings yet. <laughs> it's like way um, too far in the future. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's hard. But I would say, you know, many of the women that we interviewed do view their job as a sex provider. And so they're thinking of this and they, they've they talked explicitly about working with virgins or making it a safe experience for people who haven't had uh, sexual experiences before or maybe, you know, have a hard time um, attracting partners. And so they really mm-hmm. do see this as kind of a, a caretaker service role. Right. Yeah. We um, spoke with Alice, Alice Little. Little. Yeah. She was quite amazing. a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And for those listening along, I'll put the episode in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to that. And she said that was a lot of her work were first time people. And it was very, I don't want to say den mothery, but like nurturing and, and helping them through that process and being reassuring. And it actually sounded really sweet. Okay. So 
Um, there's all these rules and regulations and brothels are funding the schools. And I think for the common civilian out there listening, they've heard of the bunny ranch. It's like a uh, bunny ranch, bunny ranch, bunny ranch. And Dennis Hoff, who is the, you know, the guy who who owned he's passed away recently, um, the bunny ranch and the affiliated brothels. But how many are there actually in Nevada? So the number fluctuates. Um, I think it's around 20. Um, as far as brothels and they're very different. So there are some that are big and have maybe a hundred or more women who work there, maybe rotating. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're like resorts. They're very nice, very big. And then there's some that are, you know, a a trailer, frankly, and only have maybe one or two women who are working there. Huh? Well, uh, that just brings up a question that I had. Now you said that there's no men that work in any form of legal prostitution in Nevada. Are there any trans women? Yes. Uh, reportedly, there's one trans woman who works in the state of Nevada. Hmm. Really? I'll have to take a look at that. <laughs> You're like, I'll have to Google. I'm not I won't ask, ask you names. who it is, but I know Google, so I will look that up on my own. It's tax season. You might be jumping with joy at the prospect of getting a big, fat refund. Or if you have a home business, good chance you're sweating bullets. And that goes double for folks in the adult industry. Cam performers, phone sex operators, pro doms, clip creators, adult website owners, full-service sex workers, burlesque dancers, and even sex bloggers, coaches, and educators. I know the questions floating through your head. Can I write off pasties as a business expense? Wait, is my camming area considered a home office? I make feeder videos, so is the food I eat deductible? And if so, is it a business meal or office supplies? It's hard enough figuring all that out, right? Much less finding an accountant that won't, one, clutch their pearls when you tell them what you do, and two, know sex work well enough to save you the most money. The folks at X-Tax Pros specialize in adult industry clients. They know the ins and outs of sex work from Uncle Sam's perspective, and that's exactly what you need. And they don't just focus on sex work either. X-Tax Pros really knows how to think outside the box to save you cash. So no matter what business you're in and no matter what state you're in, they've got your back. In fact, X-Tax Pros is the only full service tax, bookkeeping, payroll, tax strategy, and asset protection firm specializing in adult clients. Head on over to xtaxpros.com or call 702-253-7499. And tell them Ken and Sonny sent you. Hey, did you know American Sex Podcast has a Patreon page? Becoming a Patreon member is a great way to show your support for this podcast. It works kind of like, I don't know, funding for national public radio or how PBS works. If you appreciate our work and the fact that we provide it to the world free of charge, then you can help support it. And as a member of our Patreon family, you'll be eligible for nifty, cool rewards like bonus episodes, surprises in the mail, and more. Oh, and you'll get all of our episodes early, bonus stories from guests, and access to our private Patreon feed. So you thinking about it? You want to know more? Check out all the details at patreon.com slash American Sex. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash American sex. So 
okay, so your book is uh, Sex and Stigma. Those are the first three words of the title of the book that you co-authored. And I know we talked a little bit about stigma when it comes to the regulations and the, the legalities and that sort of thing. However, there's a lot more stigma that just, you know, comes in everyday life with being one of these people that work in the brothels. So can you tell me a little bit about not only the stigma that brothel workers face, but how that affects their lives, their day to day? So this was actually a really important part of the the study to me. Uh, there is significant, you know, what we call, what we argue is labor discrimination happening. And it is around stigma and how it is impacting how women can lead their lives. So some things like uh, paying taxes. There are accountants who will not work with uh, women who report that they are sex workers, legal sex mm. workers. Um, there, Women reported that they can't get bank loans. They couldn't get uh, auto financing. And they're showing more than enough money <laughs> to, you know, their credit is great and they are uh, still unable to because of the stigma. And sometimes there are lenders who just won't lend to them. And I mean, we also heard stories about doctors and even, you know, their doctors making comments about uh, their life and bringing in extra psychologists that they think <laughs> the the sex workers need. Um, at a regular gynecological appointment. Ooh. So I think, wow. yeah, it's it's kind of, it's, it's very pervasive. And the women I talk to, I mean, they have a particular bank that they go to that they know is friendly. They have, a, you know, known accountants who will work with legal sex workers, but that's a lot of extra work that other people don't have to do in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, since Sesta Faust has come around, that's something that has affected us as well, because the word sex is in the title of our podcast. So a lot of the things that affect um, illegal sex workers also affect people like us as sex-based podcasters, as uh, as it does people who are massage therapists, people that do ASMR. One of the things that I think we should add in the show notes today is uh, and we have a lot of sex workers that actually listen to our podcast And we want to put out information from the NCSF, uh, the National uh, Coalition of Sexual Freedom. And they have some great links out there for if you're looking for a professional in a certain field that's friendly towards, you know, if if you're into BDSM or you're a sex worker or whatever it is, if you're related to this, the NCSF will help you get to the the specific professional that you need to get a hold of. Yeah, basically what the the long and short of the law is, it makes internet providers – um, that may provide you a platform to communicate with someone where you can use it for sex trafficking, they're now responsible. So now it's created this swath of internet censorship of anything and everything, even remotely having to do with sex. Eight months ago, when all the terms of service changed, happened because of SESTA-FOSTA on every social media platform so that uh, like Facebook would then be held responsible if somebody uh, ended up getting a sex worker via Facebook or Twitter or whatever. So they started eliminating people that could potentially break those laws. And the laws are just terrible. And they're actually affecting people like us in addition to other sex workers. So it's not just sex workers. are doing, And it's actually not stopping the sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is not affected at all by these laws. I remember when that came out and it was, you know, we were still doing interviews at that time and people were really upset and worried because so much of their business in the legal brothels is uh, marketing. 
and on right. you know online marketing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 awful. So, all right. Speaking of stigma, because you were saying, you know, how the doctors will have psychologists come in or, you know, treat people in a less than favorable way when they learn they're a sex worker. Well, isn't that what most of these people think? They think you're being held against your will. You know, they think that all consensual sex work really boils down to trafficking, that people like Dennis Hoff or brothel owners are really your, quote, pimps and they're forcing you to stay there. So can you address some of that sort of stigma? How pervasive is that? You know, is it go down to the family members of the women who work at brothels, the friends, like, how much do they have to hide and sequester that part of their, their lives because of that stigma? It's, it's absolutely very pervasive. And, uh, you know, to your question, as far as how far or how much they have to hide, I think it depends on the individual person. So some of the women we spoke with are quite open about their occupation and others are completely living two separate lives. So they might come to Nevada, um, live in a brothel for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then go back to wherever they live and, uh, no, and never, no one's ever the wiser. And so I think individual women deal with that in very different ways, but it's, it's absolutely so pervasive. So there's lots of assumptions that, you know, women are either abused or using drugs or that they've been trafficked or that they have a pimp. Um, And those are, those are stereotypes, you know, and stereotypes by nature um, just aren't true for everyone. So can you find somebody in the legal brothels who fits each of those stereotypes? Probably yes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's hard to reconcile with the, you know, with the reality that many of the women are there because they really like the work. Um, it's good money. Um, some of them claimed that it's a great way that they can kind of explore their own sexuality, um, in a non-judgmental environment. Many of them feel rewarded because of the service type aspects of their job. And so for people who aren't in the brothel system or who don't know much about it, it's difficult, I think, for them to get past those deep stereotypes that are so pervasive in society to see, in many ways, this is a job like any others. They have business meetings. They have sales goals. Um, One of the brothels actually gives the book Selling Luxury to all of the new uh, women who come in, which is I believe the book was actually written for um, luxury auto sales. Huh. This is my luxury (laughs) vagina. (laughs) It has that new vagina smell. I don't know. But (laughs) now I want to read the book and apply it to sex work to see see where I can go with that. Anyway, so, all right. So they're doing marketing. They're doing, you know, all this sort of service-oriented stuff. I also know that a lot of them are actually sex educators. A lot of them have gone through sex education programs in order to educate the clients as well as, like, a different form of marketing. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. what would you say from your research if you were to you know slap a, a percentage on like what percentage of a brothel worker's job is actually the sex? So I have heard, and this is you know just kind of a a guesstimate figure that about one third of their time is engaged in about one third of their time with clients is engaged in non sexual activity. So. Back rubs, cuddling, talking, going on dates, that sort of thing. 
okay, so let's go out to dinner. Let's, you know, yes. go to the top of the stratosphere. I don't know. Is there a restaurant out there? I just moved to Nevada. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Um, and and oftentimes, you know, talking to, to sex workers, that's referred to as the emotional labor. The, you know, I've heard lots of instances where, you know, maybe they end up talking the entire session about, you know, troubles at home or, you know, it's more, it's almost therapeutic, like verbally therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, so had have you found in your research that providing that emotional labor in other ways takes its toll on brothel workers? Absolutely. And most of the women that we talk to, when we ask them, what were, what, you know, what are the most difficult aspects of your job? Most of them gave us answers that were related to emotional labor. So it's hard if a client falls in love with me, or sometimes it's hard to pretend like I like somebody if I really don't. Um, That's, you know, performing and that requires a lot of energy and so, mm-hmm. and so those kinds of things can be difficult in sex work, for sure. What, you, you collected a lot of stories for the book. What was the most impactful story that you got from somebody that was not a sex worker? Well, you know, we, we mostly collected stories from sex workers. Mm-hmm. So did you did you get any stories from the madams or from uh, bartenders or any anything along those lines? We did, and you know we. We had some impactful exchanges, I would say, with the brothel owners that to me, it was, you know, again, I'm I'm an organizational communication scholar. So seeing how the whole industry and the rules and the regulations was really set up by a few people uh, to benefit their own interests is fascinating to me. And I think if, if you realize that, that it was constructed in one way to benefit some people, um, the beauty of that is that we can also reconstruct it. So I, you know, I do think brothels are safer than other places for sex work, but I think there are many things we can do to make them better for the women who are doing the work in the brothels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you know when the, those ideas were set up? Was this something recent or was it when prostitution first became legal in Nevada? Right. It was It was at the very beginning. And some of the major players who are still in power today are some of the original um, people who were setting this up together. And, you know, they, they know each other and they're not all friends, but they they certainly all benefit from some of the laws and rules and regulations that have been established. What what year was that? Because in, in my head, it's all like the 1860s, like when it was the Wild West and gold mining and <laughs> brothels. Yeah, yeah and brothels. Golden brothels. As you're, as you were asking me that, I was racking my brain trying to remember when it is. I'm going to have to look it up in the book because I don't know off the top of oh, my head. Oh, even if head. it's just ballpark, like is it like the 1970s? or? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was a few decades ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe 60s or 70s. I should absolutely know that number. So no Civil War <laughs> veterans were involved in the construction no. of those laws. No. Okay. They were really damn old. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, there were there were kind of some original laws that happened uh, during the Silver Rush, but then as far as like what was, you know, what was happening later, I mean, most as I mentioned, most of the people who put this in place are still alive. Mm. Okay. So, I know a lot of places, you know, 
look to Nevada as, hey, sex work should be legal. Look at the way they're doing things and everything's great. And amongst the sex worker community, there is a a divide. I think the majority of people, at least that I've talked to, are more in favor for decriminalization Mm -hmm. um, because they feel that the, the laws and regulations with legalization can be too overbearing and can kind of you know, spin themselves into something that's more undesirable than just decriminalizing sex work. Mm -hmm. So knowing what you know for more of a, you know, top line uh, structural framework of how legal sex work works here in Nevada, do you think it's a good system? Or do you think if we're going to, you know, let's say one day uh, federally, we're like, sex work is legal. Do you think it's a good system to follow or no? So why or why not? Yeah, that's a hard question. And that's when, you know, we've grappled with quite a bit um, because the world is looking at Nevada to see how we're doing it and and what it looks like. And I think we're doing some things well. And I certainly think there is much room for change. And, you know, I, I think testing and condom laws and safe spaces where this is happening, judgment-free zones, I think all of that is positive. Um, however, there are still situations of exploitation um, absolutely. You know, the the brothels report that there have been no cases of trafficking. And in my research, there were no cases of trafficking that, that we heard about. So I think sex trafficking is often conflated with prostitution. There are groups who believe that all prostitution must be trafficking because there's no way that women would engage in um you know, sex work without being coerced into it. And so I think it's important to separate what is trafficking and what is sex work, what's consensual sex work. Um, And that's not to say that trafficking is not a problem. It's just that right now we have this moral panic happening about sex trafficking. And in reality, the data shows that there's actually much less of that scary movie kind of trafficking where somebody's kidnapped and forced into um, sexual bondage, um, that's very, very rare. And more often what's actually happening in trafficking are maybe people like small family groups crossing borders um, or people engaging in legal sex work. And those numbers are also counted as trafficking. So I think it's really important to try to split apart what's trafficking and what is consensual or legal sex work. Pursing that out and looking at, you know, can you create a space that is actually consensual legal prostitution or not illegal prostitution in the case of decriminalization? You know, can we parse that out from um, trafficking? And I believe we can. We just have to be a little bit more precise and take away some of the moral judgments on sex itself before we're able to kind of make some of those claims. And all of that's really important before you can get to a point of saying, ah, we should legalize or we should decriminalize. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, to answer your question in a not very uh, black and white way, yeah, we're doing some things right. And there's there's quite a bit about the brothel system that I think can change. You know, right now, the brothels primarily favor the brothel owners in, um, you know, it was kind of one of the conclusions we came to in the book. And I think there's quite a bit the industry can do to minimize the labor discrimination that the actual sex workers are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your feelings on the European style of legal prostitution? Uh, for example, in the Netherlands, I, as a hobbyist, I've gone in there myself and I've 
actually been one of the people that have purchased the services of a prostitute in Amsterdam. And it's much, much easier, much simpler, much less stigma. And it's also unionized for the sex workers. Right. Which I'm very much in favor of because they have protections on multiple levels. Right. I mean, I think you you just said it like there's different ideas. There's much less stigma. And so it's it's very hard to compare in international contexts. And we do this just a little bit in the book, but it's so hard to compare systems of uh, prostitution, legal or illegal, across countries because there is just simply a very different understanding and idea about sex itself. And it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's tricky. So in the United States, you know, we still have this um, very um, Victorian Puritan version of sex that yeah. uh, that is influencing all of the laws and you know some of the pressure that the brothels and the sex workers experience which that is influencing their everyday life you know if they if they can't get a bank loan it's because of some of these moral judgments that people are making about selling sex Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the international context, that's not really a factor as much in um, in some of the locations. So, I mean, some places, you know, Australia has said that they, you know, have maybe gotten it right. I think that's what I've heard in the sex community, that right now things are going okay in Australia. Uh, you know, the Netherlands, I know, is kind of contentious and Germany is a bit contentious. Um, you know, and New Zealand, doesn't New Zealand have a positive um, system set up? I, you know, I'm not positive about that. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. But I mean, even different places, it's, you know, okay, is prostitution legal, but brothels aren't. Um, so it's, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. It's, you know, or, or apples and state, like <laughs> they're not even in the same category. Exactly. You know, and then, you know, I, one interest I have that I, you know, we didn't study, but I would like to maybe in the future is thinking about sex tourism and how does that mm. factor in? Um, you know, and, and there are different approaches about who should be held responsible. Should it be the sex provider? Should it be the quote dons coming in or the people, you know, looking for services? Should it be the brothels? Should it be the state? And so these, these are big questions that make, makes it really hard to compare across international scenes. Yeah. So in your journey, co-authoring Sex and Stigma Stories of Everyday Life in Nevada's Brothels, you walked into this as civilian. I mean, you still are, quote, civilian. Yes. Um, I'm assuming there are going to be some things, maybe you walked in with certain assumptions, that as you went through this work, those things got knocked down or things popped out that surprised you. So what were a couple of those things? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I will be the first to say that Um, You know, everybody in society is susceptible to these stereotypes. And I certainly was not immune um, to stigma or stereotypes about what I thought I was going to see when I got there. And so I think some of the things that surprised me, um, I personally, I also, and you know, another stream of research, I'm really interested in work-life balance. And I was so surprised to hear that many, many of the sex workers we talked to got into the work to facilitate better work-life balance. Um, mm-hmm. I was surprised at how many of them are moms and at the range of women who work there. I guess I, I kind of pictured a couple different versions, you know, of like very, very beautiful, all young models type of 
women. And, you know, there, there were women like that, um, you know, and then I can also picture some of the derogatory stereotypes that people have um, about sex workers. And I, you know, maybe saw one or two women a little bit like that. And then I saw all kinds of women in between. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't actually expecting there were women, you know, in in their late 50s working there, which that kind of surprised me. That's what I was going to ask is like, I'm actually attracted to older women. And that would be the kind of, you know, sex worker that I would want to see if I went to someplace like the bunny ranch is an older sex worker. Yeah, they actually they do great. They're, (laughs) they're often top sellers, at least some of the women that we spoke to who were a little bit older. Um, So I was I was surprised about that. I was surprised to see how many business skills the women have. So they have, I mean, they're independent contractors, so they run their own companies. They have had to set up LLCs. They've had to um, set up marketing. They can direct photo shoots. They are expert communicators and negotiators. And so one of the chapters, we actually talk about uh, transferable skills. And to me, that was fascinating to think about that, you know, sex work as an occupation is so much more than just the sex. They have many other kinds of skills, you know, relational skills, reading people, nonverbals, that sort of thing. Um, and, and unfortunately, because of the stigma, those can be sometimes hard to transfer out and into other occupations. Yeah, I can see on a resume like, oh, I know how to I'm really good at marketing and I can, you know, place these ads. And well, how do you know that? Well, yeah. yeah. And then you don't even get an interview. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. This has been eye opening and fascinating. And from, you know, here on American Sex, we talk to all sorts of people from academics to, you know, we talked to former Surgeon General Joycelyn Elders, and we talked to sex workers and porn stars. And so I really appreciate, as Ken said, the, the academic view, and I hope our listeners will go out and check out the book that you co authored. So can you tell us, you know, one more time, what is it where we can find it and all that good juicy stuff? Sure. So the book is called Sex and Stigma, Stories of Everyday Life in Nevada's Legal Brothels. And I'm the author, Sarah Jane Blythe, along with Anna Wiederhold-Wolf and Brianna Moore. Um, And it's published with New York University Press. So you can find it on their website, um, but you can also find it just on Amazon. Awesome. And as always, listeners, I will have the links to the book and anything else you need to know in our show notes at americansexpodcast.com. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. And thanks so much again, Sarah, for talking to us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. All righty. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag SciChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, 
tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.